shortage of things to talk about on today's Inside Politics. To help me tackle all those topics on the panel, Global BC's Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, with Back to School Around the Corner, Education Minister Rob Fleming joins us. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics from a very smoked-in Kamloops this morning. It is thick out there. Pleasure to have a full panel on board this morning. Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Richard Zussman. Welcome all. Morning. Good morning. Oh, hope you guys are breathing a little easier than we are up here. Yeah, Victoria's uh, had some smoke, but it's starting to clear down here. I can see some patches of blue sky. Yeah, it's not as bad as you experienced up in Prince George, uh, Richard. Uh, you had some pretty pretty jaw-dropping pictures from there earlier this week. Yeah, it was quite something, Shane. And I know, you know most of the listeners have probably seen what's been going on up there. You know, it's been bad in so many parts of the province, but in Prince George you have this sort of new weather cycle that's taken over and there was that one day last friday when at 9 30 in the morning was pitch black in prince george because the smoke was yeah. thick it blocked the sun it was quite incredible you know you think about when you're having a hard time breathing wherever you are in the province and think about the people in those areas who are evacuated i know it's the same thing last summer with so many evacuees in kamloops but it's just this sort of constant reminder that these fires are still burning people's homes are still under threat yep uh, and we all are you know experiencing that through this incredible smoke yeah absolutely uh let's uh let's get going here uh premier john horgan ended his summer vacation uh, jumping right back in the deep end of the pool as he met with the prime minister and his cabinet in nanaimo this week there was a long list of things on his wish list uh, i note he dragged finance minister carol james into those meetings with him uh, what do you think Keith, uh, what's your read on the situation and what are they hunting for? Well, it's interesting. Every time Justin Trudeau and, and John Horgan get together, the first question of Horgan afterwards is, did you talk about Kinder Morgan Pipeline? And it's evident, again, that they don't spend a lot of time talking about this issue. Uh, Horgan described it as a, quote, irritant, unquote. Uh, there's not much to be gained about talking about the pipeline. They've got the court reference cases proceeding, but uh, no time, I understand, very little time was spent talking about that issue. What's on uh, Horgan's agenda is, you know, both, both of these leaders need each other. John Horgan needs Justin Trudeau, or more specifically, he needs Justin Trudeau's money. He needs uh, federal funding for infrastructure. When it comes to transportation projects, he needs federal funding for housing initiatives. He needs federal funding for child care initiatives. And we're talking about big bucks. So I think he's he's developing a pretty good working relationship with Justin Trudeau. And Trudeau, looking down the road, realizes he needs someone like John Horgan because uh, it could very well be uh, the, next year if Jason Kenney wins the Alberta uh, election as the odds favor him doing so, every province between Justin Trudeau and B.C. will be run by a conservative premier and he needs political allies amongst premiers he's not going to have them he's not going to get them from the likes of doug ford jason kennedy uh, or or scott moe in saskatchewan and so just uh, john horgan is a little, um, much neater fit in terms of trudeau being able to carry off his own agenda so these two guys are developing a pretty good working relationship and kinder morgan notwithstanding it's the elephant in the room but it never really gets talked about yeah uh, that's what i was thinking too von uh, conversations on the pipeline must last for all of 30 seconds are you still in the same position Yep, yep, okay, let's move on. Yeah, I mean, look, it is pretty amazing how forgiving Trudeau has been toward British Columbia. I mean, according to the national narrative that went on through most of the year, Kinder Morgan walked away from the pipeline project because of British Columbia. 
And Ottawa had to shell out billions of dollars to buy the pipeline and the company. So you think they might hold a little bit of a grudge over that. And then Trudeau goes into Nanaimo last February, which is not forever ago, for a town hall meeting. And he gets called a snake and a liar. And the meeting gets so out of hand, the cops have to start removing people. He's back in Nanaimo this week with his whole cabinet and uh, buddying up to John Horgan. So I think, you know, it, it tells you that uh, the, the analysis that Keith just offered is, is quite correct, that Trudeau needs British Columbia on balance, is on the same page with the B.C. New Democrats. And the Liberals next year, uh, federal election in British Columbia they think uh, they can do well in British Columbia again. They, they had got 17 seats in the last federal election. They picked up another one in a by-election last year, and they think B.C. is the key to hanging on to their majority in Parliament. Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was B.C. that pushed them over the edge into majority territory uh, when the dust settled in the last federal election. Uh, Richard, there are, I mean, the pipelines, obviously, you're hitting a wall there. I mean, things are the way they are. I don't think there's going to be much movement feds to province, but uh, there's pipeline associated associated issues where they could find some common ground of things like marine protection and stuff like that. Yeah, the ocean protections plan came up in the meeting. Both uh, the Prime Minister and the Premier said as much uh, following the meeting. Uh, that's the $1.5 billion plan that was introduced uh, by the federal government. But the province is still concerned there are holes in that plan, that it doesn't uh, compensate for any potential spill, which is the big concern from the provincial government, and they are still proceeding with their court challenges. So uh, they are part of this big court challenge that was started before they came into power and then part of the reference case. So there are still steps that this provincial government is taking, but you know they're not confident that the Oceans Protection Plan solves all in terms of risk. Uh, another comment from the Premier this week that caught my ear was when he uh, was discussing uh, forestry, the wildfires, obviously a huge topic this week. Uh, and uh, a clip out of that was one where he referenced the wildfire budget-making process as sort of being laughable. Uh, Keith, obviously, um, it's a low figure, but I don't know how you work around the right figure. I mean, it's up to Mother Nature year in and year out. Yeah, yeah there is no right figure. I mean, uh, the the budget is set right now, and it has been for years, it's based on a rolling 10-year average. So you take the, the amount of money that was spent fighting fires over 10 years, uh, you average out an annual amount, and that's the, that's the item you put in the budget. It's, uh, this year is $65 million or so. Last year was roughly the same figure. Um, but the reality is we're spending well more than uh, half a billion dollars, more than $600 million last year, probably about $400 million this year. But it is what it is. It's, it's not like you're, we're going over budget. It's just you have to spend the money you need to spend to fight forest fires. You don't, you don't fight every forest fire. You let some of them burn, but certainly any ones that are interface or come in urban areas, you aggressively fight them and you spend whatever it needs to be spent. What's happened, though, is Carol James rightly spotted, I think, early on in her budget making process that 65, considering we spent $600 million last year, $65 million this year isn't going to cut it. So she has a huge contingency fund, $550 million, uh, to cover things like uh, forest fires or floods and, and those types of things, and as well as the $350 million of revenue forecast allowance. So she's got the money in the budget to absorb the hit that's going to come with wildfire costs, but Horgan's correct in that going forward, if this is the new normal, if we're going to be spending almost a half a billion dollars a year fighting wildfires, uh, then putting the $65 million line figure, line item, uh, is just not, is kind of meaningless. So the question is now, do they put 
$400 million into the budget next year for wildfires and lower the contingency fund, or you just continue on with a huge contingency fund and um, and just have a small figure associated with wildfires. At the end of the day, it doesn't, I don't really think it matters. I think Horgan's got some misplaced worries here, because if your contingency fund is big enough, you're not going to, you've got the money to fight the fires, and you're not going to tip into deficit. Yeah. And that's uh, that's the whole bottom line. Uh, part of that comment, too, is he seemed to hint pretty heavily at changes uh, to how we manage the forestry uh, mitigation in the off-season to kind of prevent this quote-unquote new normal. Uh, I don't know what we can expect to come down the line on this, but it sounds like changes are in the offing, Vaughn. Yes, I think that's probably the area where we should be putting more money aside going forward because of the new normal. I mean, you can't prevent lightning and you can't prevent stupidity in the woods, but you can do more, as the as the report that former Cabinet Minister George Abbott and uh, uh, Maureen Chapman produced earlier this year, you can do more to reduce the fuel on the forest floor, to clean out the woods near communities and the thing we call the interface. Uh, we spend, well... Uh, Carol James's budget this year put in $75 million for all prevention and fuel reduction over three years, and that was an increase, but we probably should be doing more. I think I think at some point you sit down and you do the cost accounting, which is you're spending a billion dollars over two years putting out the fires. What if you started spending a couple of hundred million dollars a year, job creation, cleaning up the forest and communities, making places safer? Uh, if you started doing that, uh, the cost effectiveness might pay off in a decade. I was talking to Cornell Mayor Bob Simpson, former independent MLA, this week, and he said something that was kind of interesting, that uh, the local governments aren't incented properly to clean up interface areas, and essentially that if they go through with what the province is, kind of has on the table now, uh, too much in property tax flows back in local residents, and then you get that kind of same old argument about taxation on the local government level. Uh, Richard, you were up in, in Prince George this week talking to the mayor there, and I know that last year we had, what, 100 Mile House, Williams Lake, places like that were emptied out uh, Prince George uh, Mayor this week kind of said that they have to think about, you know, at least the possibility of evacuation, even though that's not something that they're facing in the moment. But just the fact it's even on the table as a preparatory move uh, signals something has to be done, I think. Yeah, I totally agree, Shane. And I think a lot of the conversations we've heard over the last few days as the politicians have rolled through Prince George, first John Horgan and then Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, is this coordination between not just the federal government, the provincial government, but including municipalities and also including First Nations. So there's a lot there. First, let's hit the First Nations point. Uh, Grand Chief Ed John had this report last year that had seven recommendations, including $200 million in funding uh, from, it seems, the province and the federal government that would go directly to B.C. First Nations to cover costs associated with floods and fires. John told me when I spoke to him uh, this week that they had heard nothing from the feds in the province. Now they're at the table again having those conversations. Then the next step are municipalities. So what sort of financial support will they receive for doing things like you mentioned, cleaning up the forest for preventative measures? I think Horgan is dedicated to spending that money. I think Vaughn hit it correctly where that is sort of the next amount of money, this, you know, $75 million in the last budget. I would expect it's going to be quite high, this time higher than that, because that money needs to be given to the municipalities in order for them to do that work. Uh, to show the people of the area, there's a lot of anger and frustration, Shane, from so many people. They don't think that the province did enough in the last year leading up to the fire season to prevent what inevitably I think everybody thought was coming. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's take a quick break, guys. We'll take uh, here, listen to some of the commercials, and get right back and continue our conversation uh, with Vaughn, Keith, and Richard right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Richard Zussman. Uh, the speculation tax and, of course, the employer health tax are two contentious issues that the provincial government uh, probably doesn't want to be talked about too terribly much. They have kind of died into the background but revived somewhat this week on several fronts. Uh, one of them, Vaughn, uh, from your column is uh, an FOI request on the machinations behind how the speculation tax was set up from West Kelowna. Uh, but uh, the mayor there is uh, left wondering for, what, another 30 days or so? if he's going to get anything back on that? Well, hats off to West Kelowna for taking on the Ministry of Finance on this thing because they've, Mayor Finlater there has done, they've done, and the council has done a great job. You know, they five-page letter to the government, 24-page brochure backing up their concerns. They get a one-paragraph response back from the government, and so then they go after access to information legislation. Now, this produces something really interesting. They get back a letter from the government saying, well, you know, there's 1,700 pages of documentation behind this text, and we're going to have to go through all that, so we need an extension. And they gave them one. I, I guess my reaction, Shane, was... Uh, to me, this tax has looked like something that was worked out on the back of a napkin. So the fact that there's 1,700 pages of documentation to back up, it'll be nice if it's ever shared with the public. Mm-hmm. I doubt very much they will show most of it. I expect they'll withhold it all on the grounds of cabinet confidentiality. But this is a half-baked tax. There has been very little justification given for it yet, and we're told we won't know anything more until October. It was interesting this week. Uh, we did a story here at NL about... Uh, Sun Peaks apparently has the highest ratio of foreign ownership at something like 15%, uh, even greater than Whistler. Uh, and the, the concern up there is if they levy the speculation tax, there's going to be some significant repercussions. Kamloops and area currently, uh, it's not applicable. Uh, Richard, do you think uh, we're going to look at, probably not this legislative term, but in the future, the, the province kind of broadening the umbrella there? I think we're going to have to wait and see, Shane. Just, you sort of alluded to it there. This is, as Vaughn described it, a half-baked plan. We don't know the actual uh, rules around it yet because there isn't actual legislation yet. So I think what the province will do, somewhat similar to what was happening with the foreign buyer's tax, is that they will test it out. They will see what the outcomes are, how people react to the tax. Does it change behavior? Does it lead to this great sell-off of people for their second home? Does it harm areas like West Kelowna when the tax is actually implemented. And then when they have that data, let's say one year, two years, they'll set some sort of, you know, we'll butt up on the 2021 election at some point. But let's say they set a year target and then they reassess and start determining whether it's worth applying that speculation tax uh, to other areas in the province based on the outcomes they get uh, on the current areas that they put the tax in. Interesting. You ever seen anything like this, Keith, as far as the tax rollout? No. In fact, I think I put a tweet out a couple of days ago. I got a huge reaction. Is that if the, if the Liberals had, had done this, if they had brought in two major tax initiatives, the speculation tax and the employer health tax, without su- uh, supplying any information and then changing the rules regarding them, even though we didn't really know what the rules were halfway through the year, 
um, the NDP would have rightly have screamed blue murder. And Carol James is getting away with this, I think, largely because of her own reputation. I mean, she's very well respected, and uh, I think everybody, you know, everybody likes Carol James, but she's being cut enormous amount of slack here. Uh, if Mike DeYoung had behaved like this with this type of, uh, of tax rollout, uh, he would have been crucified, and justifiably so. So maybe it's just because it's a new government and there's a year of grace or something, but boy, if they, if they don't get their act together on these two taxes fairly soon, I think there's going to be a significant backlash, and I think it's going to dominate the uh, the conversation at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention in yep. September in Whistler, because a lot of local governments are very concerned about this. A lot of municipalities are very concerned about the employer health tax. So this is a double whammy and Vaughn, you know, we've all joked about these things being written on the back of the napkin and if there are 1,700 pages to go with the speculation tax, I have to wonder whether there's basically 1,700 napkins because we haven't seen a lot of real details here and it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> uh, speaking of the UBCM, they did send a resolution or at least one of the uh, one of the local government associations did uh, to quote, modify the approach of the speculation tax to allow instead municipalities to levy it. Uh, I assume that's much like Vancouver's empty home tax. Uh, Vaughn, uh, a resolution is a far away from uh, from the government setting policy, but uh, obviously the local governments are up in arms. Yeah, and look, it's a civic election year, but there there is there's an awful lot still to come on these taxes, and especially the impact of them and the rationale. It, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> the convention is in Whistler. Why is Whistler exempt from the speculation tax? <laughs> And West Kelowna included. That's a good example. Nanaimo's another one. Nanaimo's in. Uh, you mentioned Sun Peaks is out. Um, Nanaimo has not only got a civic election this year, where you've got a, a, a new Democrat, Leonard Krogh, running, who will presumably be called to explain why his government is going after Nanaimo with a speculation tax. Uh, and, of course, if Krogh wins, there'll be a by-election there, so that issue will be back in the by-election. Mm-hmm. I just... Look, uh, Keith and I have both been covering provincial budgets for a long, long time. Uh, you know, not quite a more to cosmos in my case, but a long time. I've never seen the provincial government announce a tax, and six months later, yeah. I still can't tell yeah. you how it works. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, uh, that's not the only tax that's kind of potentially a thorn on their side. The employer health tax, which is going to replace the MSP, just not quite yet. Uh, also, uh, subject of UBCM resolution, uh, the province or the local governments want the province to make the tax cost neutral. Kamloops, uh, as an example, I believe it's going to cost them about one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars a year and upward once this thing comes into effect. Uh, Richard, again, a, a point of contention here, but uh, a resolution going to be UBCM not necessarily means that the government's going to change any minds. Yeah, we have a promise, though, Shane, from this provincial government to work more closely with municipalities. Uh, Premier Christy Clark, it was not a friendly room for her when she walked into UBCM. Uh, there was a lot of fractious relationships between the province and the mayors, especially the Metro Vancouver mayors. Uh, Horgan has a different type of relationship, and things are a little bit different this year because we have all these municipal elections going on across the province, and there's going to be big turnover in Metro Vancouver. But... I think Horgan will throw these mayors a bone. Uh, these taxes are, you know, they have, they have spoken about consultation and improving these taxes. You know, Vaughn and Keith have both made the point numerous times that it's very rare that we've never seen it before, that we haven't seen these details of the tax. Well, these taxes aren't in effect yet. There's no legislation around them yet. 
So there are still chances for change, and that change could come in the form of input from mayors at UBCM. It would be a chance for Horgan to show, look, we're listening to the mayors, we're listening to communities, uh, and we're going to do things differently than the previous government did, because that's been, you know, the number one sell, the number one talking point from the NDP government is, look, we're different than the Liberals. And this is one great way to show that they are by actually taking the input and frustration from municipalities and applying it when they actually do solidify these two taxes. Uh, last word to you, Keith. Uh, we mentioned in last week's program that the year-end financial statements are still MIA, thanks to our colleague uh, Rob Shaw. Uh, we now know the Auditor General is in on the issue, and the delay may be due to some what she calls tough issues with the province. They seem to be centered on BC Hydro and the TI Corp. What's going on there? Yeah, Hydro's had these deferral accounts that amount to billions of dollars, which is basically putting off uh, some some expenses to be paid down the road. Uh, the TI Corp, of course, was the Portman Bridge tolls that have been added to uh, the books in terms of, of debt. And Carol Bellringer, the, the Auditor General, signaled uh, some time back that she had concerns. Even her predecessor, John Doe, had major concerns with these deferral accounts of BC Hydro. So she's been arguing back and forth with the finance ministry about this, that the public accounts are supposed to be released in July. Uh, by law, they have to be released by August 31st. We're going to get them on Tuesday, and it'll be interesting what they've agreed to or agreed not to agree to on those two key points when we see them. Uh, but, uh, you know, these are, again, last year's books, not this year's books. But to Richard's point about some changes on the tax uh, side, Carol James doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver here. She cannot provide a lot of changes because she's already had her revenue estimates built into her three-year fiscal plan on those taxes. And with the slump in the housing market, that means property transfer taxes are going to be down big time when they were projected to be up, which means that's going to squeeze her budget even further. With the, and you throw in the wildfire costs, she hasn't got a lot of room to move. And the public accounts from last year will demonstrate just, just how shaky, I think, her financial position is going ahead. And you throw in those other factors, wildfires and, and slumping housing market, uh, it's going to be very tough for her to ensure there's a balanced budget if she makes much changes to those taxes. Yeah, good point. Uh, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up in the news, and we'll rejoin our conversation with Keith, Vaughn, and Richard right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. We're talking to Richard Zussman, uh, Vaughn Palmer, and Keith Baldry. Uh, changing focus to federal politics, because I know we were all watching uh, with bated breath as Maxime Bernier, uh, now former Conservative MP, uh, left the party with something of a scorched earth policy. Uh, Richard, as you watch this thing unfold, what were you thinking? Uh, I think no surprise. I think with this, with social media and these uh, MPs' ability to communicate with people, we saw the writing on the wall. He's been sending out these tweets that have been receiving a lot of attention. This is a guy who, throughout his political career, has wanted attention, and look, he got it. Uh, you know, we're in the end of August, so it's slow political season, and he's making headlines now, and that may not last into the fall. But still, he got the attention that he wanted. It's also, I was thinking, shade a lot of sour grapes, right? The way our system works is in these party structures, like the Conservatives, we have a leadership race, you have a chance to debate ideas, you run against mainly your colleagues, and then one person wins. And some parties are better at rallying together after that, and some are worse. 
And Bernie obviously has not gotten over the fact that he finished second in that leadership race uh, to Andrew Scheer. Uh, Former Prime Minister Stephen Harper tweeted as much, saying, look, it's clear that Bernie didn't get over this. And so now he's moved on. And I wonder, you know, in B.C., this probably will have a minimal impact, I would think, federally. There may be some people on sort of the right wing of the political spectrum who like what Bernier is offering, uh, you know, the supply management issue, sort of the, the hard right of the Conservative Party, the libertarian side of the party. But I think where it's going to make a huge difference is in Quebec, where it's going to hurt the Conservatives substantially and may uh, end up handing the Liberals a lot of seats there and, in essence, the, the entire election. So there's a lot to that announcement uh, that Bernier made yesterday. And Keith, uh, when you say you're going to leave one major political uh, political party and the pulpit it gives you, and you're going to create a new political party uh, and ostensibly make a run for power, that is a lot easier said than done, especially a year or so away from an election. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm with Richard on this. I, I just don't see Bernier being able to translate this into some huge... Um thing outside of Quebec. I mean, it's very much a Quebec play. Um, immigration's a big issue there. So is supply management, like for the dairy industry. It's not a big issue necessarily in a lot of other places in Canada. And his vow to create a brand new national political party and run candidates in all ridings, one of the 300 ridings, he's got a little more than a year to uh, pull that off. And I don't see any evidence of him able to do that. There's not a single conservative voice of any note that's backing him right now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I've noticed on social media, the conversation amongst conservatives seems to be, hey, we've been through this before. We went through this in the 90s when we split into the Reform Party and the Canadian Alliance, and that allowed uh, Chrétien and Martin to run the, pro- the country for more than a decade. Let's not do that again. And I think that's the lesson they learned, and I think it's a lesson they remember. And I'll be surprised if Maxime Bernier is uh, going to be talked about in anywhere near the, the type we're being talked about right now, say, two or three months from now. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Vaughn, I brought back shades of memory for me and perhaps we'll see it play out similarly uh, with John Van Dongen leaving the BC Liberal parties and jumping to the BC Conservatives. It certainly created a wave in the moment and some ripple effects but then just really ended up being nothing. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of people have tried to do this at various political levels across the country over the years. Um, I thought the meanest shot at Bernier was the former colleague who said that he never had a reputation as a workaholic in government or cabinet. (laughs) Going to have to work bloody hard in the air ahead. But the one big unknown in this that's different from what happened 25 years ago with uh, Lucien Bouchard and Preston Manning is social media. You can get awfully famous awfully quickly and organize a fairly substantial political movement through social media. So if he plays that, if he goes around as some of these populist uh, right and left parties have done around the world and starts saying things that the other parties aren't saying, who knows? He may end up as a factor in the next federal election. Uh, These are volatile times politically, and uh, he could end up surprising all of us. Hmm, we'll have to see. Uh, quick around the horn and uh, before we uh, end uh, this portion of the show, uh, Keith, uh, the Greens are doing a provincial tour as we speak. They're splitting up and going here and there and everywhere. Adam Olson, in fact, is in town, I believe, arriving tomorrow uh, here in Kamloops. Uh, I was talking to him earlier in the week, and it caught my ear when he said uh, it's unacceptable for the party to just think confining itself to three ridings in Vancouver Island is good enough. It's not. So then that raises the question, can they springboard past that or no? 
if we have a next election run on the first past the post system, I think the Greens will be lucky to hang on to their three seats, let alone grow. Um, I still don't see any evidence that the Greens are going to are tapping into some vein of public opinion that uh, to bleed away votes from the other two existing parties. Um, no, I mean, the, the, what we saw in the last election is they replaced one of the other parties as the alternative to the favorite in the riding. So uh, the Greens were telling me in the last like we're going to win New Westminster, we're going to win New Westminster. Well, no, they didn't even come close. Uh, the NDP won that walking away. But the Greens did replace the Liberals as the second choice. And that was the same thing that happened in a, in a couple of other ridings. But I think there was a lot of protest votes parked with the Greens last time that won't materialize next time. Uh, but if we have a, a election fought on proportional representation, the Greens will be a factor in that. Barring PR, I think the Greens may have hit the, the, the as good as it gets uh, bar in the last election. Uh, Vaughn, uh, the party also lauding its accomplishments. Uh, what have the Greens accomplished? Well, they got the New Democrats to do a bunch of things that the New Democrats were going to do anyway. <laughs> obvious thing. They, they installed them in power, and that's been a big contribution. The interesting thing on it, that the, the big question out there is still the number of times that Andrew Weaver's come out and said, government got it wrong on this. He's denounced the speculation tax. He's opposed to uh, Site C. He's, he doesn't think that uh, the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions can be reconciled with the plan to develop LNG. But what's he done about it? I mean, I've written lots of pieces. We all have of the wonderful quotes that Andrew Weaver gives us. But the real test is whether the Greens will ever use their voting power to rein in some of the excesses of the NDP, and they've not done that yet. Uh, final word to you, Richard, and slightly different topic. I caught your story with interest this week about former Premier Christy Clark coming out of the woodwork, uh, showing up in a podcast to air her thoughts on a variety of issues. Yeah, it's a really interesting, Shane. It's worth a listen. Uh, the podcaster is David Hurley, longtime political operative, ran Kathleen Wynne's campaign in Ontario, a uh, longtime friend of Christy Clark uh, and her ex-husband, Mark Marison. And, the, you know, it was not a hard-hitting interview in any regard. It ran about 45 minutes. She wasn't pressured on any issues. She wasn't asked about, you know, the money laundering casinos or any controversial issues, but she did was asked about the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the federal government's decision, and she described the federal government's decision to buy it as the second worst possible choice, and the worst would have been to do nothing. What her advice would have been to the federal government is you have the approvals, stay strong, wait BC out, and, uh, you know, Kinder, uh, you know, sure Kinder Morgan that things were going to be okay. And I don't know if that would have meant applying more financial pressure to BC in terms of telling the province we're going to take away your funding if you don't come on board here. But she seemed uh, not impressed with the decisions that were made. And then there's more issues she went into. It's worth it. The podcast called the Holy Burly Podcast. Uh, it's interesting to hear Clark weigh in on all these issues because we hadn't heard from her in a while. So it's worth a listen, I think. All right. Gentlemen, always a treat. Uh, thanks so much for joining me and have a great weekend. Take care. Bye-bye. There we go. There's Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Richard Zussman. We'll take a quick break here in Inside Politics. On the other side, Education Minister Rob Fleming. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. 
Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics here on Radio NL. Uh, we're just waiting on the Minister, Education Minister Rob Fleming, who I think is just calling in as we speak. And uh, yeah, there he is. Uh, Education Minister Rob Fleming now joins us in Inside Politics. Good morning, Minister, and welcome. Okay. There we go. There you are. Hey. Hey, <laughs> hey Rob, how are you? I'm well. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Could use uh, just a little bit less wildfire smoke. Having trouble breathing, but other than that, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I hear it's going back and forth. Like, it clears, and then it gets smoky again. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really awful right now. It's just brutal. Uh, so hopefully this clears up by the time school goes back in, because that'll present a bit of an issue as well. Um, yeah. The reason I got you on uh, back to school, obviously, is uh, just around the corner here. Uh, last year was year one under the class size and composition mandate, uh, and while there was a lot of progress, a lot of improvements, there was also some wrinkles to iron out, uh, teacher shortages, substitute teachers, classroom space in a lot of cases, and increased portables, things like that. Uh, obviously, this is not going to be a quick fix or a quick adaptation as we go into year two of this rob in your mind what are the what are the challenges to kind of keep forging ahead on this thing um well i think i think the challenges or the solutions rather are uh, around uh, building much needed capital projects in uh, districts like kamloops and other uh, areas that are experiencing growth um this has been a building problem since about 2014 uh, in kamloops when enrollment started turning around and ticking upwards uh, we certainly recognize uh, that in this district and many others, uh, the government left us with a capital plan that was pretty bare in terms of where um, projects were. Some districts uh, have not had capital investments for well over a decade. Kamloops is one that has been very low on the previous government's priority list. So we've moved that up. We created a $100 million uh, fund specifically for additions to schools that will help eliminate portables. That's something that will help Kamloops sort of get to the top of the pile in terms of capital projects that are supported by the government. And uh, last spring, I think about eight months into our mandate, we asked uh, Kamloops to uh, look at Valley View Secondary. I've been to visit that school, and I certainly well understand the problem, having seen it for myself and talked to students and teachers and, and the principal of that school. Uh, we invited them to... Uh, proceed to what we call business case development to get the numbers on what what the cost of that project would be we gave the school district to the end of 2018 to do that i'm hearing and i'm very pleased to hear this that uh, the school district is uh, expecting to, be able to submit that report and uh, go out to tender after that uh, much sooner so really really looking forward to uh, seeing what the project definitions of that report are and uh and then taking it to Treasury Board for support. We've got the largest capital budget uh, in BC history for school construction. Uh, we want to make sure that communities that have waited a long time, uh, like Kamloops, are, are part of that investment. Uh, Valley View Secondary, you just referenced there, uh, by the way, has one of the new, I think it's four new portables uh, that have come in this year, uh, right in front of that building, a pretty obvious one. Uh, if, if, that, if the timeline goes, and it sounds like it's going, uh, going along uh, really well, if the timeline keeps going, Rob, any idea when we could pull the trigger on that project ideally or no? Well, the way we can speed it up is to get the, the business case uh, developed as soon as possible, uh, get the funding approval through the provincial government, and then work with our partners in local government. We've engaged a lot of mayors and councils about how we can get permitting done uh, as quickly as possible. In, in some, in some uh, regions of the province, it's, uh, it's an interminably long period of time uh, to get approval. Sometimes it takes one or two years, and that's ludicrous. In the uh, current construction market we're experiencing, it will just add cost, and, and of course it will, uh, it will add delays to the 
classroom overcrowding conditions that uh, students and their families are experiencing. So, yeah, that was, that was my next. We can move. We we think we can move quite quickly once the district submits its plan. Yeah, how important is the capital uh, from a class size and composition perspective? Because one of the uh, one of the side effects of that over the last year, and I think it'll continue into this year, is the loss of classroom space, or sorry, not classroom space, but the loss of sort of uh, teaching space to create classroom space, so like computer labs, uh, music rooms, sure. in some cases, things yeah. like that uh, have been converted, which is, is not ideal. So how much is the capital side uh, sort of heavily emphasized in order to address what is a classroom size, uh, classroom uh, space challenge. Yeah, I mean the the smaller class sizes, which is which is a good thing for new kids coming into the system, particularly in uh, kindergarten grade three uh, last year, which which also supported the hiring of uh, thousands of teachers around BC, um, is a good thing. But it has, uh, you're right, caused some some space challenges. Uh, we've been really concerned, especially where on-site childcare facilities uh, are facing pressure. Uh, we've responded through the Ministry of Children and Family Development by creating a, a capital plan so we can use ancillary buildings and school properties to make sure that none of those child care facilities are displaced. And the school districts have done a wonderful job of, uh, of accommodating that because they value uh, early childhood education and how it strengthens the school. Um, but, you know, look, going back to your earlier point about portables, we, we funded all the ones related to the Supreme Court last year. Uh, but portables are meant to be temporary, and uh, if, if Valley View is adding four this year, um, it has to be seen in the context of a project that we want to support uh, so that we can get rid of portables, uh, and therefore they truly will be temporary. Yeah, no, and I hope that's the case. Uh, on the bargaining front, uh, and it's going to be a big challenge looming ahead, uh, the TF is uh, having their summer conference right here in Kamloops this week. Uh, matter of fact, Glenn Hansman's going to address uh, the keynote to, to wrap it up uh, today. Uh, we've already talked to him. Bargaining is going to be one of the big uh, topics he's going to discuss. He wants you guys at the table uh, no later than December, ideally a little earlier than that, perhaps around Thanksgiving. Uh, I talked to him a few days ago. He said, to date, uh, there's been nothing back from your government to move in that direction. So uh, to you, are, are we going to see an early arrival at the table, an early start to talks or no? Uh, we're going to look at that and uh, we certainly respect the request from the BCTF. Uh, we've been at the bargaining table with our other major K-12 to uh, education bargaining unit, uh, uh, CUPE, and uh, they have a tentative agreement in place that will hopefully be ratified in September. The members have to uh, uh, look at uh, what has been negotiated and then vote on that. Uh, that'll help uh, with uh, getting the BCTF to the table sooner. Uh, the other thing that uh, is part of this is is around uh, restoring democracy uh, to the BC uh, Public School Employers Association. The previous government eliminated all elected trustees uh, from uh, government's bargaining committee, and we think that was a really crucial mistake. You lose all the expertise of those who manage human resources on the ground, and don't forget, the 60 school districts are actually the employers uh, that do the hiring and, and HR uh, support for all of their employee groups. Uh, so they have to go through elections in October. Uh, we hope that uh, the, the four trustees we have on BCPC are, uh, are returned. Uh, they have to go through an election, and then they'll be in place, and, and then we'll be able to get ready on our side of the bargaining table and, uh, and get to the table with the Teachers' Federation. Is your goal, though, Rob, to get them going early? I mean, that's the TF's goal. I don't know where you're going to, how you're going to approach it, whether you want to stick to sort of the usual timeline or not. But I mean, would you ideally like to get to the table like November, December, or no? 
I think we're open to that as a government, and we've we've got employee groups uh, literally in every part of the public service uh, in a in a bargaining schedule. Uh, hundreds of thousands of employees had their contracts expiring in 2019. The Teachers Federation uh, contract expires in June 2019. So. Um, you know, I, I think what we've been hearing from the Teachers Federation is uh, is very positive. Um, you know, they're, you've had Mr. Hansman on as a guest. I think the uh, respect we've shown for the teaching profession uh, over the last couple of years, uh, the last year, I should say, uh, as a new government, um, is helping set the right tone for bargaining. Uh, this is the first time in a long time where you have government and uh, the, the teaching profession absolutely aligned on an agenda around student success. Uh, we've invested 580 million new dollars in, in learning resources as a new government. So we're actively working right now on improving working conditions for teachers right across the province. So the table is set very nicely, I think, in terms of the kind of momentum we're building to make improvements in our public school system. And, uh, and I hope that carries us uh, very successfully and quickly to doing what hasn't been done in a long, long time in British Columbia, which is to uh, settle an agreement uh, in short order and, uh, and, and have a, a give and take at the bargaining table that's successful. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, last question, we only got about a minute left, but uh, teacher shortage is one of the big issues last year. I understand there's still some, some dregs of that problem this year. Uh, where, in your mind, where are we at on that as far as uh, being fully complemented on the teacher side, on the French side, and on the substitute teacher side? I think we're in a much better place than we were last year. Uh, it was a Herculean task to hire, uh, to fund and, and support the hiring of 3,700 teachers last year. That's never been done. Uh, you talk to veterans in the education system, and they will tell you that, uh, you know, you have to go back to the 1970s uh, to see hiring conditions this good for teachers. And we've got lots of, you know, 22, 23-year-old uh, teachers who are right out of um a BC University being hired, it's great, into full-time work. Um, of course, that meant we depleted the substitute teachers list, but, you know, that was a good problem to have, again, for many individuals who'd been languishing on the substitute list for six, seven, even nine years who are now in full-time work. Uh, but we've aggressively hired out of province. We've got a lot of interest uh, continuing. Uh, we have some international hirings as well. Uh, we have about 1,800 new licensed teachers coming out of BC's universities. So uh, we're in a much better place this September than last September. But I have to say, given the, the scale of the challenge a year ago, uh, school districts like uh, Kamloops, uh, North Thompson, and, and others did, a, did an amazing job uh, uh, hiring in a, in a very short period of time. Rob, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Shane. There's Education Minister Rob Fleming, back to school, right around the corner. On the other side of this break on Inside Politics here on Radio NL, we'll talk about Maxime Bernier's rather spectacular exit with a Conservative Party insider and strategist. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Welcome back. Maxime Bernier making an exit, a rather spectacular one from the Conservative Party of Canada this week. To talk about that and what it means, a Conservative insider, Elise Mills, joins me on the phone. Interesting times, as you know, Maxime Bernier uh, have a meeting of a scorched earth policy as he throws the towel in the, on the Conservative Party and Mr. Scheer. Uh, off the top, uh, your sort of immediate reaction to this? I, I'm confused. Uh, and as a Conservative, I'm angry because I think we've been here before in the 90s. Um, it reminds me of a gentleman by the name of Lucien Bouchard who felt he could do the same thing. And it turned into becoming a very destructive and painful thing for Canada. 
Uh, and we spent many, many years uh, rebuilding those relationships in Quebec. And uh, to, I don't understand it. why are we looking backwards to find solutions for tomorrow? Um, it tells me that uh, Mr. Bernier, although he had, you know, some very good ideas uh, and he could have taken them further, has just chosen to choose his own career and his own brand over conservatism as a movement. Yeah. Do you think that this, I mean, it's obviously a blow of some type, but uh, do you think it, it's a it's a big blow? Is it something that, that the party can, can rebuild and move on from, or, or what's the impact? I, I don't want to dismiss that it that it is, I, I wouldn't call it a blow. It's definitely an open wound at this point, but um, the party will go on and the Conservative Party will continue to be successful. Uh where Mr. Bernier has really entrenched himself since leadership is in Quebec, and his advisors are in Quebec, and he's chosen to pull himself out of more of the national conservative conversation. And of course, I think he probably res- he, he's going to resonate with some people sprinkled across every pro- province, uh, because when you're angry and you're fearful, uh, that's going to sound pretty good to you, right? Yeah. But And that's not something that just lives in Quebec. Uh, but I, I think that conservatives, or more, maybe more importantly, people that have chosen to either support the Conservative Party or vote Conservative or both, will look at that and wonder what the success uh, is on that. What's the ROI, the return on investment for supporting a party that is going to be on very wobbly legs, if not, I don't even know if it's going to be standing up by the time we hit 2019. I think there's going to be a lot of bluster and blow, but when it comes down to the hard numbers and the membership, any of us that were in that period of time of the merger of the Reform Party and the Conservative Party can tell you how difficult it is to build a party. And even, Shane, this would be a great connection with your listeners. When I joined the BC Liberal Party in 91, we went through that break from the federal liberals and went into more of a SOCRED party. Even then, it's difficult just on the organization level, the membership. There's the technical side of party building. There's not just all these, you know, interviews and rallies. You actually have to be operating like a business because you have to be able to fundraise. Yeah, it reminds me a little uh, of John Van Dong and quitting the Liberals and jumping over to the BC Conservatives. I mean, it's one thing to do it. It's another thing to run a party from the ground up and be competitive. Yeah, I, I, I think that's actually a far better analogy than anything I gave you because, you know, I, you and I both had a front row seat to that. And I think there was, you know, a few raised eyebrows looking over or conservatives like myself that were in the BC Liberal Party were interested to see what was going to happen there. But I was always going back to the fact that um, these people, the, the people that go towards parties like that, that are often one or two issue parties, have a very hard time coming together and agreeing on fundamentals. The fundamentals and the boring stuff they're not really interested in. They're more of a protest movement, and therefore that sort of disables them or impedes them from reaching full party status in a fulsome and meaningful way. And I think that's what we've seen with the BC Conservatives. And there's tons of these little fringe groups out there. And I think Mr. Bernier, he's got some star power now, but he's earned that through cutting his teeth through the Conservative Party. He, we don't, I don't think he should overextend himself into believing that what he's got right now is going to be able to last forever without all the tricks and toys and, and, and opportunities that being in a party and, more importantly, being in the Conservative movement gives you, right? 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, to some degree, this is a litmus test to Mr. Shear, uh, and has been since uh, since uh, Maxime Bernier started lighting up his Twitter account. Uh, well, how does he forge ahead on this one, Elise? I can I can be very honest with you, Mr. Shear, and I know this personally. Mr. Shear did everything he could in, since the leadership to make sure that Mr. Bernier understood that he was valued. And there were, there were several, uh, you know, on a less formal level and on a formal level. And where this is coming from, I'm not so sure. And I think that, I, I think that Mr. Bernier had a mindset that he felt marginalized for whatever reason. His ego was a little bashed and bruised. I don't think he's had any different experience than anyone that has to stand beside and at times behind a leader. Uh, but I think that the loss of the leadership, he never got over. And, uh, and and we even saw that in the first couple of days after leadership. He made it very clear what he thought of Mr. Shear's uh, win and who was, po- who, who was the reason behind it. The reality there, Shane, was that Mr. Shear's team did a very good job. And what they understood was that they had to be the second choice of every conservative member. That was how you were going to win that particular leadership. And it was all about the ground game, staying quiet. Max was like a bull in a china shop on that campaign. And, um, you know, he had some amazing advisors, but they were always going for number one. Sheer outsmarted them by by making sure he was the second choice. Everybody knew it was going to go down to several ballots, right? Yeah. Uh, is that when the ashes settle on this, Elise? Is it the Quebec connection that's really the the most important in this? Are the Conservatives going to face a challenge, and I don't know, rebuilding support that Maxime may have taken with them or, or ruined on his way out, or, or no? Well, yeah, that's a concern because the Conservative Party and the movement has made huge strides and inroads into Quebec, especially since 2011. Right? That's how long it takes because we're still relatively a new party when you think about the merger, but that's how long it takes to go into regions like Quebec that are are particularly unique. The same would be for British Columbia or Alberta or Newfoundland, and it takes a tremendous amount of time to build those relationships, to build the trust, because you have to maintain a consistency on the high-level policies. And I think it's going to be interesting, because Mr. Bernie is anti-supply management. I'm not so sure Quebec dairy farmers are going to rally behind that. The farmers may support us and may support Mr. Bernie in other areas, but they're not going to rally behind his his anti-supply management position. And yes, it's it's I, I'm interested to see what kind of uh, vibration that gives us in the party. Are we going to lose a little steam in, in Quebec? Um, because we're still living in a country and in a time where even if, if you're in BC, really, quite frankly, it all comes down to Ontario and Quebec. It's very unjust. It's very unfair. But in order for parties to make inroads and to win government and win elections, they have to have some uh, buy-in by Quebec, right? Yeah. Last question, Elise. Uh, the, the speculation in the media from some quarters is going to look at the Conservative Party MPs and speculate about who might also flee the tent. I, I personally don't think it's going to happen, but do you see any push or pull there from some MPs that, that could be considering walking with Maxime or no? No, and this is what makes Mr. Bernier's decision so surprising. I never thought we'd be in a position where we would see a defector like that, and not just defecting, but actually jamming the knife into the leader's back. I'll tell you something, Shane, it doesn't matter, and you've learned this, whether it was, you know, we were talking about with the, those who had defected over to the BC Conservatives. You never win when you desert 
It does not matter what kind of reason you have. It doesn't, it, it never goes well. And it's way better to try and slowly make change on the inside. But I'm still not clear what Mr. Bernier was upset about. Mr. Shearer did not completely denounce him. What it was, was he was wanting to clarify the tone Mr. Bernier had set on some tweets. He want, he was, he was also, uh, in a position where he was concerned that Mr. Bernier was overreaching in regards to decision-making and releasing policy that we weren't ready to release yet. I mean, the whole thing really became a spectacle, and I don't know any Conservative MPs that, other than Mr. Bernier that would ever jump on board with that type of behavior. Like the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, and we certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's normally B.C. in the summertime that leads the craziness, but I guess it's going to be Quebec. And, and just so your listeners know, I actually thought Mr. Bernier might have jumped to the, the CAC in, in Quebec, which is the party that's running to defeat the, the, the Quebec Liberals, because today the writ dropped. And that could be a change of government, and that could be another center-right, right-of-center party that wins government in this country. So after that, we look at New Brunswick. After that, we look at Alberta. And so that, that's going to be a majority of premiers. If that goes well, it's going to be a majority of premiers that are conservative. And I really thought Mr. Bernier would see the opportunity there if he wasn't getting along with Mr. Scheer. This would be a great opportunity, and my sources were telling me they had really tried to court him with a minister of finance position. So I was really surprised to see how hard and deep he went on on going in on Mr. Shear today. All right, perfect. I'll let you go, Elise. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shane. That was communications specialist and conservative insider, Elise Mills. One final break ahead on Inside Politics here on Radio NL. On the other side, we touch base with this province's former child and youth representative, Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Welcome back to Inside Politics. The BCTF holding their summer conference here in Kamloops this week. To kick them off, one of their first keynote speakers out of the gate was a well-known name. This province's former child and youth representative, Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond. I went up to catch the speech and then chatted with Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond afterwards. Here's that conversation. I was caught by your comparisons uh, with the BCTF struggle back in the class size and composition sort of court battle over that that, uh, long period to the Ministry of Children and Family Development from the aspect of a government that was sort of actively stripping away resources. It was an interesting compare and contrast there. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of history in British Columbia where some of the care was stripped out of the system and teachers were on the front lines of trying to pick up pieces uh, and not having resources for their kids and their families. And, you know, as I said tonight, every September I'd get calls from teachers and they'd say, hey, Mary Ellen, like, you know, these kids aren't back. I don't need to know everything, but just tell me that they're okay because I really don't think they are and I don't, you know. And that really spoke volumes about how teachers, they're kind of like the front lines, right? And um, they experienced a lot of trauma over the years from... You know, being basically the poster children of, um, you know, why they're not doing a good job at this or that and not respecting that they didn't have a lot of resources. I was also caught uh, with the Haida teacher who stood up and and shared the struggles to sort of, um, you know, repatriatize uh, a First Nations youth from, uh, obviously her community has been divorced from that community and back in, out of the system. Uh, Obviously emotional about that and and you really seem to say, kind of, you know, uh, have some insight into that and and feel for her. Oh yeah, no, I think the experience of a Haida nation, like when you hear a Haida teacher, like first of all, she's traveled seven hours to get here. Yeah. To come to Kamloops to um, you know be part of a 
be part of this process with other teachers, but also she's trying to do things in her community, which is also get their children to at least know their culture. And I mean, the Haida Nation is a very strong nation. Yeah. Um, they, uh, you know, high, uh, they're, they're been managing their park, they've been managing their territory, they're a very uh, prominent nation in British Columbia, yet they too struggle to get their children back and to find out where they are and bring them back and get them connected to their actual families and their culture. And this is the kind of front lines of Indigenous child welfare is it's happening, but it's just too hard. Like, we need to make it easier, which is why, you know, I'd like the federal government to pass some legislation to give us tools to make it easier. Why is it so broken? I mean, uh, there's been a lot of awareness over the last few years about reconciliation and there's undrip and all that kind of thing. We had this one aspect of the system is kind of stuck in time somewhere. Well, I think it's because we need more modern tools. So we need some clear legislation to recognize that we've got to fix it. And... Um, it's also resources and tools are what we need, but it has to be respectful to understand that, you know, First Nations families are recovering from residential school and they need to recover alongside their friends and neighbours in a way that can respect the journey that they're on. And for many of them, you know, like in British Columbia, there's 4,000 Aboriginal kids and they're not necessarily in their family community. They may never be fully in their family community, but they can at least be supported to know their culture and their family. And the ministry hasn't done a very good job at that for a long time. They didn't have a lot of resources. I think I helped argue to get them a lot more resources and I hope they use those resources for these good purposes. Yeah. Tell me a little about uh, this lobbying effort to, for legislation. I know you were, of course, people remember you as a big advocate for child welfare and your former role as a child representative. You seem to sort of refocus and found a bit of a new mission post that, that role. Yeah, like I think the thing is like I have a certain amount of expertise and also in my work now as a professor of law as well and my law practice I'm very involved in support the development of Indigenous child welfare, but also I have clients that are like First Nations kids and families that want to kind of navigate the system, not only in British Columbia, but in Saskatchewan as well. And um, so I think in my role, like, I mean, my, my passion for child welfare wasn't just because I was representative for 10 years. It's because it really is an area that I love working in and I like supporting children. And I see so much potential for us to do better in Canada and we need to get there, you know, like just like I'm also advocating strongly that the Pope comes to Canada and apologizes for residential school. Like, you know, these are things where you don't have to have a job to be part of this. It's part of just justice, right? So we work in common cause to do these things. And uh, child welfare issues are ones that I think all British Columbians are interested in seeing that they improve. But again, if you don't push from wherever you are, they won't improve. So the federal legislation is really important. Um, they've made a commitment toward it, but I mean, we're in the dying days of a government. We're 18 months away from an election. Right. So when are we going to see it? Yeah. Uh, you know, and so I think a lot of First Nations leaders and peoples and child welfare advocates and others are like, we've talked about it. We're getting very close to it. Now, will you please show us what we're going to do? Like, do we have to wait another five, six, seven years? Because that's kids lost. Yeah. Uh, First Nations adults overly represented in the prison system. First Nations youth overly represented in the child welfare system. Do you see a day when those might not be the facts of the day and that we might heal that divide in our lifetime or no? I do. I see that. I see that. I see, like, in a way, we kind of have a better class of problems than we had a few years ago. But I don't see any of that changing unless we really work together to make a change. So, I mean... 
the over incarceration, the over representation, the poor school achievement, these are things that aren't going to change unless we do things like what these folks are doing here, which is teachers really want the best for those kids and are prepared to work with them. And I mean, the best solution to most social problems happen in preschool and school. And so hence, you know, I have a strong long-term relationship with the BC Teachers Federation and teachers. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to do a good job in our province. Let's um, kind of lift them up and let them do that job for kids. I was curious that you singled out uh, First Nations teachers within the system. I mean, one, you know, sympathizes with the plight of First Nations children and, uh, you know, greets the, the progress made there. But I've never heard anyone single out First Nations teachers and, and sort of urging people to protect them and, and that kind of thing. Well, it's in time for it's time for the school system to recognize and honor the role of First Nations teachers. And most of them are women. There are some men too. Most of them are raising their own children and trying to recover from all of these legacy issues that we're facing, yet going every single day to make a contribution with their colleagues. And a lot of them come from traditional nation systems like the Nishka Haida systems we heard about today where the, their, their law is and their culture is that you don't say no to someone in need. So they're they're coming after hours, they're attending funerals for their kids' parents and they're like there, you know, they, they really believe in support. So honoring and respecting their contribution many teachers go over and above i know that and i respect that but these indigenous teachers wow i mean they've they've worked so hard and you know they're they're not adequately acknowledged and so i really just feel like my job you know here today is to lift them up i know them personally i know what they do and like the woman from Haida Gwaii traveled eight hours to get here and tells us his story and i mean what's she here for she's here because she wants kids to do well and um, she's creating a better education system every day and we need to wrap you know blanket her and we need to support and recognize all that she's doing this is uh, my last question, but it's kind of a curiosity one. Uh, I know you from your time as the child rep when um, and everyone thought you did a wonderful job in that role. But you time and again brought out and made public these, I think it's safe to say, these horror cases of different children in the system, which, you know, was great and it served a purpose, uh, as awful as it was. But I was always curious, you know, not only yourself, but your staff and, and even ministry staff for that matter, whether that impacted you in an emotional level. Because, you know, there is a trauma associated with immersing yourself in that world and then suddenly you come up for air. And I mean, it's sort of the definition of post-traumatic stress syndrome in some ways. Did, was that a struggle for you? As you, I mean, I, your mission was clear, but mm -hmm. did, did you kind of, did that weigh heavily on you? Well, absolutely. I mean, when you become involved in the lives of children and when they have really bad outcomes, either they're critically injured or there's a death, and you work with the family, like, the, the trauma is there. But I think the very important thing for me is I had a lot of good spiritual support, a lot of strength, good staff. But also, it's really meaningful when you can work with families and listen to them and actually take what they tell you and bring it forward. You know, like, how hard is that? I mean, yes, the families are grieving, but the families frequently had really good points. And for a long time in British Columbia, families were shut down. Like, sometimes they were given letters from the ministry told that they can't talk about their own kid. And I would just be backing them up saying, listen, I know you got a letter from the ministry. You can't talk about your child. You need to talk about your child. I will back you up to talk about your child. Was it traumatic for me? Well, it was more traumatic for me to stand and do nothing. But what was really significant was to find a way to, to honor the lives of children when they haven't been treated appropriately so that we can try and prevent it in the future. We can't prevent everything, but 
going to where people are with families is really important. And even in this region, you know, there are families that needed support. Their kids are, need mental health supports. Their kids have special needs. They can't get help, and they're made to feel like, as parents, it's their problem, that they created the problem. Half of the job was just saying, I'm with you. Look, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to take your message forward. I will report on it. I will push it and make it visible. So standing with people, is it traumatic? What it, yeah, but it's the truth of our community, right? So, but in the end, is it is it a strength? I viewed it as a strength. I mean, I it's a great honor to do public service, and I love the families I got to work with, and you know the children I got to work with, and I, I continue to have that disposition. So something I enjoy. Maybe I'm a little freakish, but I you know I love children, and children that need support are children I'm up for. That's BC's former child and youth representative Mary Ellen Terpel Lafond in Kamloops this week to address the BCTF summer conference. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. We'll see you again here on Radio NL next Friday. 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft Cash Creek from CHNL in Kamloops. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.